0: And uh, welcome to everybody in the room and all of you that are tuning in on, on live stream. It's great to have you here this morning, to have you with us. And uh, my name is Darcy. And um, when I was in grade five, I was part of a grade four five split class. There were five of us in grade five in this four five uh, grade uh, in this classroom. And so there was uh, Carrie and her best friend, Sherry. And there was my friend, Douglas, me, and my arch nemesis, Eugene, Uh, I think I've talked about Eugene before. So uh, one of the things that they would do to to help us as grade five students is they would actually pull us out once a week for a creative writing intensive. And so they would have another teacher uh, help us with that. And so in this creative writing group, we learned that good stories had four parts. Uh, They had a beginning. They had a problem. They had the resolution of the problem. And then they had an ending. And so to help us understand, you know, the parts of a good story, one of our assignments that the teacher gave us was the first part of a short story that had the beginning and the problem, and then we had to write the resolution and the ending. Now, I love stories. I love to read. Um, I love books. Uh, But I came to realize that when it came to stories, I hated writing them. I mean, I, I just, writing is a lot of work. I mean, actually like writing, because it involves spelling. And I, I hated spelling, you know? So, so I looked at this assignment and I, I knew how to write the ending. The ending was gonna be good. It was gonna be two words, the end. I could spell that. But the conflict resolution part was gonna take a little bit more work because the problem in this story was about a group of of young people who had snuck past the danger, no trespassing sign, had climbed this huge metal ladder, and then had gotten stuck up on top of this very large tank. I think it was like a water tank, one of those those mega-gallon tanks. And so our task was to come up with the resolution to this story. Now, I had a go-to resolution for these types of stories. Whenever a character got into a problem like this, the easiest way to get them out was for them to wake up and realize it was all a bad dream. <laughs> right? Yep. Good resolution. Unfortunately, I had used that device several times, and I realized that I needed to come up with a new angle. So in a moment of inspiration... I wrote about a huge tidal wave that came, and I called it a tidal wave because I couldn't spell tsunami. (laughs) A huge tidal wave that came and washed these kids off of that huge tank right back to their homes. Hey, it's called creative writing, okay? And the best part, it only took about a page and a half. So the next week we had creative writing group and I read my conclusion to the story and everyone just kind of looked at me and then Eugene said, that's stupid. (laughs) Thank you, Eugene. (laughs) I I think his conclusion was they jumped off the tower with parachutes or something. I don't know, but... And then little Miss Smarty Pants Carrie read her story and in her beautiful penmanship with her perfect spelling and colored illustrations she suddenly had her main character wake up and realize it was a bad dream. <laughs> and that teacher thought that it was the most amazing resolution to that story problem. And I sat there thinking, you have got to be kidding me. My second rate idea is her best story? Well, as, as, as people, we love stories. Anybody love a story? We love stories. All of us, we love to read stories. Uh, we love uh, to watch stories. Um, we may not like writing them. <laughs> we may write them poorly, but we love hearing stories and reading stories and watching stories. And I think one of the really interesting things in our culture right now is is all of these streaming services that are, are coming on to tell us stories. You know, you got Netflix and you got Disney... Uh, what is it, Disney whatever, uh, yeah, and then uh, Amazon Prime and Hulu, you know, all of these streaming services because we're addicted to stories. We want our stories, right? Um, when we experience something in life, we turn it into a story. Like the story I just told you about my creative writing group. Uh, you can actually get very formal about the stories you, uh, you write about others or yourself. They're called biographies or, or autobiographies. Um, but here's what I want us to understand this morning. Stories are actually how we make sense of our world. Stories are how we make sense of our lives. In fact, whether we realize it or not, all of our lives are lived under a dominant story. A dominant story that explains our lives and helps us make sense of our world. And we call this dominant story a worldview you ever heard of a worldview? A worldview is simply a story that explains our lives. And everyone has a worldview, whether you realize it or not, whether you admit it or not. It's simply the story that we use to explain our world and explain our lives, to explain who we are, to explain why things happen, to explain where it's going. And the worldview that we have literally shapes everything uh, about us. You know, from what kind of car we drive to the house that we want to live in, uh, it shapes our understanding of family. It shapes our relationships, our our romantic relationships. It it shapes our understanding of our sexuality. Our worldview um, tells us what we think about politics or what we think about the environment or what we think about the future or what we think about other worldviews. All of that kind of stuff are ideas and understandings that are shaped by your worldview. Now, when you boil it down, at its most basic level, a good worldview has four parts. And they basically match the parts of a story. A a good worldview has a beginning that sets the stage, it introduces the main characters, it gets the story rolling, it it helps us understand who we are, how we got here. And then secondly, a good worldview helps us understand what the problem is, that something has gone wrong. We understand this world is not as it should be. And then a good worldview has the conflict resolution kind of the, the main part of any story. What's the solution? How do we fix this? How do we you know, make our world a better place? All that kind of stuff. And then then there's, a, there's an ending. How does it all end? Do they live happily ever after? That's the, the way I like stories to end, but not every story ends that way. So that's kind of the, the, the basic parts of, of a worldview, and, and here's something else that I want us to talk about, and I have to warn you that for some of us, this may get a little uncomfortable, because I think we need to talk about the fact that all worldviews are not equal. All worldviews are not equal. Uh, you probably noticed that uh, there's more than one worldview out there. Have you noticed that? There's more than one way of understanding life, more than one way of looking at our world and looking at our, our planet. And um, some of the worldviews that are out there get classified as religion. So there's worldviews like a, a Hindu worldview or a Muslim worldview or a Jewish worldview. And, and a very close view, view related to that is, is a Christian worldview worldview. And these are all what people would call religious worldviews. And then there's some worldviews that would be insulted if you called them religious. Like there's uh, the atheistic worldview or the secular humanist worldview. I think Scientology would probably be a a worldview that would not be a religious view. In fact, those worldviews really are almost anti-religious, if not outwardly anti-religious. But at their essence, all of these philosophies or all of these religions or all of these convictions are just different stories and some of them are very different stories, very different from each other, but stories that attempt to explain you know, how the world began, who we are, what role we play in the drama, you know, why the world is the way that it is, and, and how it gets resolved, if it does. So if there's different worldviews, the question really becomes this, I think. Which worldview does the best job telling the truth about our lives and our world. If there's a number of these different worldviews, how do we reconcile them? And when you look at them, because they are so distinct and different, which worldview does the best job telling the truth about our lives and our world? Which worldview, which story corresponds best to reality? Which story is true? A couple of weeks back, we were doing some work on the renos here at the church. And I think we were actually, it was a day we were doing some sanding uh, of the beams out in the foyer area. And I had to run down to Midland Tools just down the street here uh, to get some sandpaper. And I pull into the parking lot, uh, parked beside this SUV. And I noticed at the back of this SUV, had a whole bunch of bumper stickers on it. But when I walked by the back, I realized what these bumper stickers were talking about. And I I hope you can read some of that up there. Um, Because it wasn't, you know, baby on board or or surfer dude, you know, the the typical bumper sticker. These were bumper stickers. Bumper stickers like, no special rights for Christians. Um, If idiots could fly, churches would be airports. I actually thought, thought some of these were kind of funny. Uh, There's a sucker born again every minute. Uh, Does God speak to you? Consider medication. Uh, Real men don't have imaginary friends. That one's just kind of, you only see see part of that, but I thought that one was, real men don't have imaginary friends. Silly Scientologists. Cults are for Christians. And uh, I have to, I kind of stood there absorbing all of that. I really. I got to take a picture of this because um, it was laugh out loud funny for me. But I also realized, you know, in some ways it's kind of sad because there's a story behind this. And I'd, I'd, I'd like to know what the story is. Uh, it kind of reminded me of, what, what's the line from Hamlet? Uh, the lady doth protest too much. Methinks. And now I mean it could be a, a lady, but to be honest with you, I think that SUV belongs to a guy. <laughs> just just saying. But you know, I wonder what the story is. But whatever it is, that's a comment about worldviews. Not only the Christian worldview, but the worldview of whoever drives that SUV. And in that person's humble opinion, (laughs) the Christian worldview doesn't measure up. I mean, after all, Jesus is just Santa Claus for adults. Wow. Now, you know, most people are probably not that rude. They would not say that religious stories that people believe are actually false. You know, that would be impolite at best or intolerant at worst. At the same time, though, many people would not really consider religious stories to be true, at least not in any deep sense. Instead, people are tempted to think of religion as a kind of spiritual fantasy club. You know, it's true for you, but but not necessarily true for me. So when it comes to religion, you know, basically, find the club you like and knock yourself out. You know, go for it. If it meets your personal needs, if if it warms your heart, if it helps you get through life, you know, good for you. Great. That's what religion is supposed to do. But here's the mantra of our culture. Don't confuse religion with reality. Don't confuse religious stories with reality because reality is about science. Science. Reality is about physics and, and what I can touch and, and feel. It's about what's real. One of the books that I've been reading in preparation for this series is The Story of Reality by Greggy e. Kuchel. And uh, Kuchel, I, actually I realized when I said it out loud, it's kind of an interesting name, Kuchel, but anyway, um, said something that, that really challenged me and clarified something for me because he said, you know, typically our understanding and explanation of Christianity doesn't go deep enough. Even as, as followers of Jesus, you know, we get asked the question, you know, what is Christianity? Or even, even in our own minds, you know, what is Christianity? And, and he says, some would say that Christianity is a religious system that people follow. Others would say that it's a guide to living a fulfilling life or maybe a way to finding peace with God. Or maybe it's a system of ethical principles to live by. And some might say that Christianity is not really a religion at all. Rather, it's a relationship with God or a relationship with Jesus. And Craig Kugel points out that, you know, all of those answers have some truth in them as far as they go. The problem is, though, that they don't go far enough Because Christianity is more than any of that. Christianity is more than just a religious system. It's more than just a path to a fulfilling life. It's even more than a a way to find peace with God or even have a personal relationship with Jesus. It's all of that, but it's more because ultimately Christianity is a picture of reality. It's a picture of reality. It's the story of the way the world works really is. In fact, I need to clarify something here. We've, we've called this um, series, True Story. And so I, I need to define those words a little bit. Uh, when I use the word true, we're using the word in the ordinary sense. We're not using the word in the sense of, you know, it may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Um, one of the phrases that has slipped into our culture is this uh, idea of my truth. Uh, Have you ever heard anybody use the word, you know, let, let me share my truth. Let me speak my truth. And maybe when they say that, they're saying, you know, let me give you my perspective. Let me give you my understanding. But maybe they're saying actually a bit more. Maybe what they're really saying is, you know what, now that I've labeled this as truth, you can't disagree with me, or you can't contradict me, or you have to accept everything that I say because, you know, it's true for me, even if it's not true for you, and I can have my own version of the truth. But just because it's your perspective or your opinion or even your belief, does that make it true? Well it doesn't at least not in the ordinary normal sense of the word truth right let me give you a definition of truth it, ordinary truth this this is what truth is truth is that which corresponds to reality that's what truth is that which corresponds to reality i mean you can believe anything you want to be true i, I mean you can you can believe you can i believe i can fly And you can climb up Mount Benson and you can jump off the backside cliff that we can't see from town. And you're going to have a reality check. Because truth is not what you believe to be true. Truth is actually that which corresponds to reality. And reality has a nasty way of getting our attention. So we call this uh, series True Story. Uh, truth is, or is, uh, what's true is what corresponds to reality, but there's also the word story there. And story comes from the Latin word historia, uh, from which we get our word history. And that's exactly what the Christian story claims to be. History. It doesn't start with once upon a time. It was never intended to be understood as a myth or a fairy tale. In fact, how does the Christian story start? I bet you every one of us have read the the first line in the Bible. How does it start? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, 1. Our our kids had a a tape of that one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1. We've all read that. And when you look at that, you, you need to notice some stuff about that. You need to realize that it is a story that claims to be rooted and grounded in time and place. A story that is actually history. A story that claims reality. Nancy Piercy, in commenting on the first few verses here in Genesis, says this, and there's some big words here, but I think you'll get it. She says, Christianity is a comprehensive account of the structure of reality, a rational and real-world account of the history of the universe a verifiable storyline of the unfolding of the cosmos. That's what Christianity claims to be. And if you believe Christianity is anything less than that, or believe that Christianity claims anything less than that, then you really don't understand the story that Christianity is trying to tell. So does Christianity really give a comprehensive account for the structure of reality? Dr. Edwin Hubble, uh, the guy they named the Hubble Space Telescope after, uh, came up with what is now in scientific circles the leading hypothesis for the origin of the universe. It's called the Big Bang Theory, uh, and Big Bang Theory—it's not just a sitcom, okay? It's—it's it's actually the theory that the universe as we know it began with a huge explosion called the Big Bang. And for people that have a secular worldview or an atheistic worldview, and that's the view that there is no God, that we're here by naturalistic evolution, that it all just kind of you know just kind of happened by chance. The Big Bang is their go-to. It is their explanation to the first part of any worldview story, the the, the beginning. How did we get here? They'd say, well, there was a Big Bang. Well, in the last 20 or 30 years, the Big Bang Theory has actually started to cause some problems for the naturalistic evolutionary worldview. That's the view that there is no God. And it's been causing some problems, not because it's been found false, but because that theory might actually be true from a scientific perspective. And here's the problem. If the Big Bang hypothesis is true, it leads to two questions that science can't answer. The first is, If it's true, where did all that matter that exploded into this universe come from in the first place? And the second question is, is how did it happen? So so basically the question boils down to is where did all this stuff that got banged come from and who banged it? And physics can 't explain it because it actually oper- there 's nothing in, in the laws of physics that we understand that that even comes close to explaining any of that, and so now they know it happened, but they can 't explain how it happens if you 're a, a science geek. You know, into astrophysics and that kind of stuff. You're probably aware of the the Cosmic Background Explorer satellite. Uh, It's called the, the the COBE, and it was launched in the spring of 1992, and it gave what scientists called a stunning confirmation of a Big Bang creation event. And George Smoot, the, the head of the COBE satellite team, who actually won a Nobel Prize in 2006 for his work on this project, said, looking at the microwave background radiation, because that, that's what the satellite did, it, it, it looked at the microwave background radiation from the Big Bang. He said, you know what, it was like looking at God. Not that God looks like microwave background radiation, but it's, it's like the, the fingerprint of God because there was all of a sudden they realize there's something there that they can't explain. Dr. Robert Jastrow, the professor of astronomy at Columbia U and a couple of other places, was the director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies for about 20 years, commented on that, and he said this, "Uh, now we see how the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. In fact, he went further, and this is a a quote you can look up. He said, For the scientist who's lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He's scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. So the Christian worldview actually claims to be a comprehensive account of the structure of reality. And it's not just physics that would go, well, you know what, that kind of checks out. Um, Michael Behe was doing his postdoctoral work in biochemistry and, and his particular passion was the chemistry of life, evolutionary biochemistry. And he said early in his his academic career, he had no qualms about the standard naturalistic evolutionary theory. But the more he dove into it, the more he and his friends kept kind of bumping in to these problems. And so one day he was talking in the lab with a, a fellow postdoc. And he pointed out that to get to the first cell in the evolutionary process, to get to the first cell, you first needed a membrane, And she said, well, and then you would need proteins. And he said, well, and you would need metabolism. And she said, and you would need a genetic code. There was this silence. And then after a short time, they both looked wide-eyed at each other and simultaneously shouted, ah, nah, (laughs) can't go there. Because even though they didn't want to admit it, when you look at things from a molecular level, a cellular level, they realized that there were some serious problems with some of their theories. And that led, actually, Michael Behe on a search for answers, and he's become one of the leading advocates for something called intelligent design. And it's a theory that says, you know what, when you really look at the details, this could not have happened by chance. It's too complex. It's too perfect. So whether you're looking at the, word, the world through, through, through a telescope or, or a microscope, uh, whether your field is astrophysics or chemical biology or, or even psychology, we, we don't have time to get into that this morning. Guys like this will say, you know what? If, you, if you're honest, if you, if you will actually look at it, you begin to see something that Christianity isn't just a religious story or a religious system. It's not just a a good way to live or a good way to feel better. It's actually a picture of reality. It's actually a pretty good accounting of the way things actually exist. And you know, this idea of reality is carried through the entire Bible. It starts in Genesis 1.1, but check out the beginning of the Gospel of John. And, and John was one of the disciples of Jesus, and, and he wrote a story about Jesus, the, the history of Jesus. And uh, he starts his book, his Gospel, by echoing the, the words of Genesis chapter 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word and we read further on that we realize he's actually talking about Jesus. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Astounding statement. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Again, astounding statements. In him was life. And that life is, is the Greek word zoe, and it means life source. And him wants the life source, the inherent capacity for producing living beings. And not only the inherent capacity for producing living beings, but it's life that is especially understood as characterized by healthiness and wholeness and happiness and exuberance and energy and vitality. It's not just biological life, but it's the best kind of life. In him was the best kind of life, and that life was the light of man. Then you drop down a few verses to verse 14, and you come across what might be the most important verse in the Bible. John 1 verse 14 says, and the word, again talking about Jesus, the word became flesh or human, made his dwelling among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and, what's the last word? Truth. Notice that last word, truth. I looked it up, and, and it's actually truth as, as in quality of something. It's a noun that means conformity to reality or actuality. Now, it often has the the implication of of dependability, and so that's why some of our translations actually talk about faithfulness there. But, but, But the root idea is that in Jesus, there was this conformity to reality, and not that he conformed to reality, but reality conforms to him. That when we look at Jesus, we we find the best picture of what actually is. Our picture and understanding of our world and what it's all about is actually rooted and found in who Jesus is and what he says. And John wasn't just saying this. He said that Jesus said this. Because one day Jesus was talking with Thomas and Philip, and in John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I am the truth. I am reality. Everything conforms to me. I am what what actually is. I'm the best expression of reality. I'm the best expression of everything that you find in the world and, and how it all makes sense. I am the truth. And not only am I the truth, but... I'm what solves the problem. Because Jesus' words were not just a good expression of how to feel good about yourself. Jesus' words were not just an expression of a passion for social justice or or, or how to love your neighbor. As good as those things are, Jesus' words and his life are primarily about him being the answer to the problem that we find ourselves in in this world. Now, I know if you're not a follower of Jesus, or if you're someone who's been used to thinking like so many in our culture, think that, you know, truth is your truth and I can have my truth. You look at a verse like that, and that's a pretty tough pill to swallow. It sounds so exclusive. It sounds so intolerant. It's, it's suffocating in its heaviness. But it's a claim that Jesus made many times and in many ways. and Every disciple who was personally trained by Jesus carried the same message. They didn't downplay it. They didn't explain it away. They didn't make excuses for it. In fact, they laid their lives down for it. Because they realized that in Jesus, they had found an expression of reality. more than just a good story, more than just a way to feel good about yourself, but what he said and what he did actually explained the world and explained their lives. Let me close with this. Um, one of the podcasts I've been listening to recently is, is called This Cultural Moment and I recommend it to you. It's a podcast about following Jesus in the post-Christian world, and it's uh, basically the conversation of a couple of pastors who lead churches in very post-Christian, uh, post-truth contexts. Uh, John Mark Comer is one of the pastors, and uh, he pastors a church in Portland, Oregon, which is you know on this side of the continent, uh, the Pacific side. We also call it the left side of the continent <laughs> for a reason. Uh, you know, it's the same side we're on, and, and so what's happening in Portland, I think, is very similar to what's happening on a lot of places on, on the left coast, particularly in places like Vancouver and, and perhaps here in Vancouver Island. But uh, he said that recently on a Monday morning, he got an email, and it was not his normal Monday morning inbox experience. It was from a Satanist who'd been coming to their church for the last few weeks and it was essentially coming to faith in Jesus. And Mark said that this guy was highly intelligent. He was a great writer, a little bit funny, a little bit irreverent, and clearly in process. And so in this email, this guy referred to a book that came out a couple of years ago called The Death of Expertise. Maybe some of you have heard about it, but... Um, Uh, This book talks about how, you know, it used to be that you would go to the expert for help. You know, you would go to the expert in medicine or or the expert in political science or economics or the expert in religion or or whatever. And now in our culture, that's essentially over. Uh, You know, everybody's an expert, everybody's an authority. You know, hello, Dr. Google. I mean, we can figure this out for ourselves, right? I mean, we know what's going We know what's best. We know what's going on. We have an opinion. We have a truth. And this guy talked about how he was educated to believe that as a 16-year-old kid in high school, sitting in public school, that he had every right. In fact, he had the responsibility to disagree with the teacher. He didn't have to swallow everything that was just kind of being said. He could disagree. He, in fact, he had to push back. He should push back against the teacher, against the, the PhD or the scholar's view of this or that or the other thing. And, and he began to think of himself as just as qualified a thinker as the teacher. I mean, he had his opinions. And they were just as valid and just as right and just as true as anything that anybody else said. And he said he carried that view of his world into his view of God. And he said, I actually believe that I knew better than God around the issues of morality and society and religion. So I just kept pushing back and believing my own ideas and believing my own opinions until he said, I got to the point where I looked at what I believed and I literally said, my worldview is stupid. it's incoherent, it's inconsistent, it's empty. It doesn't correspond to the reality that I keep bumping into in this world and it's leading me to death, not to life. And so Mark said, you know, here's somebody who's fresh in this moment, looking at what he believed and looking at the way that he lived and was coming to the conclusion that what he believed, what his worldview left him with nothing. Nothing except him being racked by anxiety, left him with PTSD, stressed out of his mind, left him with, with no marker for how to understand the world or move forward with his life. You see, reality has a way of getting our attention and teaching us about itself. And you can believe whatever you want to believe. But does it align with reality? The Apostle Paul said this, and I was going to say I'll close, but I already said that, so... Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, he says, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come come from human thinking, from the spiritual powers of this world, or from Christ. What are you going to build your life on? what story are you going to believe what story do you think best corresponds to reality over the next 5 weeks we're going to be diving into the reality that is the christian story and we're going to be looking at the beginning the ending and everything in between and we're going to look at next week how the how the story actually begins with god and then explains who we are explains what the problem is explains the answer to the problem and also how it all ends and if you're a follower of Jesus the challenge is going to be to to see if we really know and understand the story The challenge is going to be, you know, are we able to share the story? The challenge is going to be, when we look at our lives, are we really living out of the reality of that story? Or do we keep kind of dragging in bits from other stories into our understanding and our life? If you're not a follower of Jesus, or you're on a journey spiritually, the challenge is going to be to Put the pieces together. And I I think that this series is going to help you put the pieces together. It's going to help you see the big picture. Help you understand the story. Maybe for the first time. Let's pray. Lord, I want to pray for all my friends that are gathered in this place this morning. Jesus, I'm so grateful that following you is more than just a a way to feel better about our problems and our world. That following you is, is more than just a bunch of moral obligations or ethical principles. It's more than just caring for others and loving people as good as that is. It's actually about finding reality. Finding something that corresponds to how this world really is. So Lord, help us understand your story. Help us to embrace the reality that is in you. And Lord, if some of us are maybe not clear what it's all about. Holy Spirit, we invite you to work in our hearts. Bring us understanding to what your word says. In Jesus' name, amen.